you had to summarize in one word the greatest problem or challenge the church of our Lord faces today, what would that one word answer be to that challenge that we face? I believe it would be worldliness. Worldliness does impact the church of our Lord. It has always impacted the church of our Lord. And it always will, for as long as time stands, at least it will seek to have an impact and influence because the things that are of the world are of Satan. And Satan, obviously, is going to be determined for as long as time stands to overthrow the church if he possibly can and to overthrow individual members of the body of Christ whenever and wherever he can do so. James the writer whom we are studying in his epistle of James is dealing in the section where we are now with that very problem, the problem of worldliness in chapter 4, where we began last time a discussion of the first three verses. Where do wars and fights come from? Where? Among you, he said. We're talking about wars and fights among the members of the body of Christ. What's the source of that strife? He asked, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? That is, in the members of the body, I think primarily he has in view here, though certainly within the members of the body of Christ that is sometimes true, but the lust of the flesh, uh, the lust you lust and do not have, he goes on in verse 2, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. Now we mentioned that murder or kill, as the King James says, in this text, we're looking at the New King James, murder is used obviously figuratively here, but remember in 1 John 3.15, John said whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Uh, hatred, that attitude is dealt with not only by John in that text, but by the Lord himself uh, in the Gospel according to Matthew where he talks about, you have heard that it has been said, you shall not murder. But I say, who hates his brother without a cause? Whoever hates his brother is guilty of, of murder, in effect. And so the Lord dealt with it. Others, like John, have dealt with the fact that hatred is the precursor to, to murder, the forerunner of such. It doesn't always lead to murder, but that kind of hatred is, is condemned along with the kind of murder itself that is obviously wrong in the sight of God. And so Jesus talks about the fact that we are not to have the attitude that would lead us to murder. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, etc., shall be in danger of the judgment. And he goes on to talk about the attitudes behind the action itself. It's not just the action, but the attitude. And obviously that's what James has in mind when he says you murder or you kill. Uh, in other words, that's the kind of animosity that sometimes affects even members of the body of Christ. You covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Their, their prayer life had been obliterated by their carnal desires. Some were asking, some were not even bothering to ask, but those who were asking were not receiving because they were not asking in accordance with the will of God. Verse 3, as we looked at, because you're asking 
to spend it on your pleasures. Do you believe God is going to answer a prayer that you have to, to spend uh, uh, what you have on your carnal desires? You're asking God to give you what you need to carry out carnal pleasures that are contrary to the will of God? Who can imagine such a thing? And then we come to verse 4 where we begin our study tonight looking at these next two verses, verses 4 and 5, as he continues to discuss this all-important subject, the subject of worldliness. And he says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Notice, adulterers and adulteresses. And just as we said, as the case is with the use of the word murder or kill, which is used figuratively as in warring and fighting, here, adultery is used in that same way. Adultery is used in that figurative sense of spiritual adultery. James is saying there are some of you who are guilty of spiritual adultery. But James's use of this figure is not new to Scripture because when we go back to the Old Testament, do we not find that in the Old Testament writings, God is pictured as the husband of Israel of old and that Israel is pictured as his wife? And the plea, for example, time and again, came to God's people who had committed spiritual adultery. The plea came from the prophets of old, like Jeremiah, who in Jeremiah 8.14 pled with God's people, Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am a husband to you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. As Jeremiah issued that plea, it was issued at a time when Israel had committed spiritual adultery. They had departed from God. They had embraced other gods. And Israel could always return. They always had that opportunity. God had never moved. They had moved. They could come home to Him. But they had to come home to Him on His terms. That is, with genuine repentance. And then when we come to the New Testament... We see that same figure used in reference to Christ and the church. You remember what Paul wrote as he used that analogy in Romans chapter 7 about the husband and wife are bound to each other for as long as, uh, as the husband lives, speaking to the woman. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. Then he makes the analogy about being dead to the law, that is the law of Moses, in verse 4 where he writes, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, listen to it, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. We are, as Paul affirms there, married to Christ. And what a beautiful figure is also used along this line in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember those verses that describe the relationship of the husband and the wife and also the relationship of the bride of Christ, the church, to the bridegroom himself, Christ. Remember verse 22 beginning Ephesians 5, wives, wives submit your, uh, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore just as the church is subject to Christ, just as the church is subject to Christ, notice the analogy, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Here it is again. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, 
that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands, verse 28, ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Again, here it is, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting from the book of Genesis, but here's verse 32. This is a great mystery, Paul writes, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That husband-wife relationship is analogized to the relationship that Christ sustains with his beautiful bride, his spiritual bride, the church. And so he concludes verse 33, that section, nevertheless let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We're married to Christ. And when a Christian departs from Christ out of love for worldly things, then he's guilty of spiritual adultery. Physical adultery is a prevalent sin, tragically, in today's world. We can only imagine the hurt that is felt by those whose mates have become unfaithful to them in that way. But how does Christ feel? How does Christ feel? When those who have become married to him through obedience to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ turn their backs upon him because of worldly pursuits and become disloyal. Wives and husbands and employers and armed services all insist on loyalty and so does God. God insists on loyalty. We need to appreciate the fact that we, if we are married to Christ, and we are if we're Christians, we must heed what James writes here, make sure that we never leave him, go into spiritual adultery because of worldliness. Adulterers and adulteresses. And then he says, do you not know? Do you not know? That's, that's a phrase that we need to stop and think about for a moment. Could it be that there was a possibility that these people, some of whom James was writing to, had indulged in sin to the degree that they really did not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. He asked the question, do you not know that? Do you not understand that? Could it be that they had become so indulged in sin to the degree that they really had lost sight of that? Can that happen to anyone in today's world? Does it ever happen? Does anyone sometimes say, you know, I just don't see anything wrong with that. I don't see anything wrong with social drinking. I don't see anything wrong with gambling. I don't see anything wrong with immodest apparel. I don't see anything wrong with dancing. Speaking of dancing, let me digress a little bit and tell you that next Sunday morning I'm going to preach a sermon entitled, Shall We Dance? Shall We Dance? And a lot of you may be saying, I have no intention of going to the prom this year. Joe Weir is not going. I know he's not going. No. 
and many others are saying, why are you going to preach on dancing to this congregation? Well, we do have some young people, but even if we didn't have a single young person who might be contemplating going to the prom, it is a part of the whole counsel of God because I believe very clearly that dancing is addressed in the Word of God. Lasciviousness is there. Indecent bodily movements and the unchaste handling of males and females, that is the definition of lasciviousness in the Word of God. And I believe that the dancing that goes on uh, today, and I said, you know, remember we talked about dancing with the stars one time, and I'm not, uh, uh, if I step on your feet, so to speak, uh, as someone might if they were dancing with you, uh, then so be it. But I was telling you that uh, Don Blackwell had mentioned to me one time that he had read an article where some brother in Christ was trying to get uh, people to, Christians to boycott uh, the, the program Dancing with the Stars because this transgender uh, son, daughter, son of Cher was going to be on it. And my comment was, why would we necessarily have to initiate a boycott among Christians not to watch Dancing with the Stars? I don't care if there's a transgender on there or not. I don't believe a Christian has any business watching Dancing with the Stars. And I'll tell you that right up front because I don't, I've seen enough of the preview to know what kind of dancing is going on on Dancing with the Stars. And my question to a Christian would be, why would you be attracted to that? Um, but back to my point more directly, and I think it does pertain, it's not so much of a digression, because we're talking about worldliness and how the world can infiltrate and affect the church. So let me share with you something that came to me by email this week, dated March 6, 2012, under the heading, It's Official, We Can Dance. And the writer says, I am a member of the North Atlanta Church of Christ. Like many American Christian denominations with historical ties to biblical literalism, we as a tradition, did you get the way he words that too? We as a tradition have historically frowned upon and often outright rejected as sinful dancing. There are various reasons for this. Some of the most ardent non-instrumentalists among us think that any enjoyment of instrumental music puts your soul in danger of hell fire. Well, that's a straw man. I don't believe that an enjoyment of instrumental music of any kind will put your soul in danger of hell fire. And I hope you don't believe that either. But that's what happens sometimes. You build a straw man so that you can, in effect, uh, make your case otherwise. I don't know of anybody who's thinking straight who thinks that any form of instrumental music that you listen to is going to put your soul in danger of hell fire. That's an extreme assertion, obviously. He goes on, most others reject dancing as a, quote, gateway drug, end quote, into a life of sexual promiscuity. And others have defined appropriate dancing as what we do and inappropriate dancing as what they, often non-white persons, do, he says. Now, my wife and I had dancing at our wedding reception. Of course, it wasn't in a church building, but still. So we don't necessarily accept the traditional arguments against dancing. However, it's important to say that I understand and respect those persons whose faith commitment is so deep that they hold themselves to a stricter moral code than necessary to avoid even the perception of sin in their life. He's saying if you're opposed to this kind of thing, 
you're holding yourself to a stricter moral code than is necessary. I'm sure you've got that, but that's what he's saying. Well, how does he know we're holding ourselves to a stricter moral code? Isn't he putting himself up as one who can judge what that moral code is? Well, of course, he is. But he goes on. Um, he said, uh, but after saying that uh, he doesn't, he respects them, and he said, I really do. Hey, I'm an ethicist, he says in parenthesis. But there's been a, here's the key, but there's been a significant shift in the world of churches of Christ over the last week. North Atlanta, one of the biggest churches in our tradition, and Abilene Christian University, probably the most well-known denominational college, as he calls it, still recognized by the majority of churches as, quote, faithful, end quote, both came out last week with statements making public their decisions to allow dancing. North Atlanta will now allow dancing at weddings held in its building, and ACU will allow dances on campus. And he says North Atlanta's announcement was in its monthly church bulletin. The main reasons for their decision were concerns of, quote, diversity, end quote. Basically, they've tried to take seriously that faithful Christian expression can and should look different in different cultural contexts. ACU's take can be found here, and that's where you can go, and I've got information that I'll bring out next week, Lord willing, to some extent there as a part of the sermon. Let's just say, he writes, the new generation is going to be blessed with parenthesis, and robbed of growing up in contexts where rhythmic bodily expressions of joy that are often set to music will not be frowned upon as of the devil. With time comes change. With time comes change. And I did read an interview with one of the ACU officials as to, that was done by the Christian Chronicle as to why they're doing this, how it's going to be implemented. And basically, he said, we'll take each request for dancing uh, on a case-by-case -case basis and we'll examine it and look at it, see what kind of music they want to use, et cetera, et cetera, and, uh, and go from there. Well, uh, that's tragic. That's not, uh, that's not anything but tragic in my view that... Uh, for one thing, his whole perspective on Abilene Christian University, I'm sorry, saying that most, that the majority of, if the majority of brethren still view that university as, as among a, a, what does he say, faithful, uh, strong uh, university, then um, we're in worse shape than I thought we were. Um, so that is something that is deeply disturbing to me. And um, it may indicate that maybe we haven't done in our pulpits across the land enough preaching on, on dancing and what the Bible has to say about it. But you'll find out next week, if you're here, that the world itself, the world itself understands better than these brethren do what the modern dance involves. And I'll prove that next week. I'll prove that the world itself knows better than obviously some of our own brethren just what dancing involves, what it leads to, the sexual connotation that it has, the movements that are involved, the places, the venues, the accompanying drinking, the prom setting, etc., etc. All of it 
is of the world. There is nothing about it that can be said to be anything but a compromise with the world. The very thing that James is writing about here, there is nothing new under the sun. And I'll take some lyrics from some of the songs that were popularized years ago that you still hear uh, a lot. ABBA, the group that's no longer together. Dancing Queen, one of the most popular songs that has ever come down the pipe. Dancing Queen. And when you look at the lyrics, you can see that those who wrote that song, ABBA, I believe, I'm sure wrote it, they understood exactly what dancing was designed to do. And there are other songs written by those out there in the world who don't even claim to be members of the Lord's body that clearly show that they know, they know what is associated with the modern dance and what it leads to. Shall We Dance? That was the name of the article concerning Abilene Christian University. And yet, the Bible still has something to say about that kind of activity. It is deeply disturbing. There used to be an alternative to the prom here in Chattanooga years ago. I don't know if there still exists such a thing or not, but there used to be. I hope something still exists that's an alternative to that, but I'm not sure uh, that it does. But this is relevant. It is relevant to where we are today in terms of the kind of impact that Satan is still having on our society and, yes, even upon the church at times, as is evidenced by these changes in policy at this congregation in Atlanta and also at the university at Abilene. It is not a positive development, to say the least. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know, James asked. Sometimes a person will say, I don't see anything wrong with those things. And that person may be so young in Christ, uh, may not have grown in knowledge of God's Word and in spiritual maturity to the degree that they actually know that such things are sinful. They may be babes in Christ and not understand certain things. Another may know that such things are sinful but just refuses to be honest with himself or herself and with others by admitting it. Some want to save room for justification and rationalization. And some just don't intend to do right. And someone else may have engaged in such practices for so long until their sense of discernment is blunted. That could have been the situation here with James's readers. I don't know. But the ability to distinguish and to discern between good and evil is absolutely essential to living the Christian life. I need to know that I can know whether the modern dance is, is sinful or not. I can know those things. I can understand from Scripture. Oh, I don't know that... Uh, obviously, it's the, case, it's the case that not every specific activity that's available to people today is mentioned by name as such in Scripture. The word gambling is not in Scripture. You don't find the word gambling in Scripture, but you find the prohibition, the condemnation of what gambling involves in Scripture. And the same thing is true 
of dancing and social drinking and other things. Hebrews 5, verse 14, solid food. Solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We've got to exercise ourselves to discern between good and evil. And what if I have an inability to recognize that certain things are sinful? What if this man who wrote this article is wrong, and I believe he is? What if he's wrong and he just does not see it? Does not see it? Does that make right what he is contending is right simply because he contends that it is and doesn't see that it's wrong? Well, of course not. That's why we have the Word of God. A blind man doesn't see the sun, but that doesn't mean the sun is not there and that it doesn't shine. It does. It's just that the blind man cannot see it. And so James is not teaching them here a truth that they had never known. He's talking about something they knew but needed to be reminded about. He needed to stir them up. And Peter had something to say about that, never hesitating to do that in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 12, beginning, remember there he wrote, For I will, for this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, he says, as long as I am in this tent, this tabernacle, this body, as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, I'm going to die, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. We've got to remind each other of these things, and we cannot take for granted that every generation is going to know what the previous generation knew in terms of discerning between right and wrong. We've got to continue to teach those things. So what is it that we teach? We teach that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Let me ask you, why would, why would someone want, why would someone want to change a policy to include something like dancing at a university or in a church building? Why do you do that? Why do you want to do that? What's the motivation for doing that? Could it be motivated by something James is going to talk about right here in the latter part of verse 4 when he writes, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world. What does he say? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world. Is that what's happening at Abilene Christian University? Do they want to be a friend of many of their students who are coming to them out of the world? Do they want to be friends with the world? Is that what North Atlanta is doing? Do they want to be friends with the world? If not, my question would be, why do you want to do it? Why would you do it? Even if you refrained from doing it simply because you knew you had brethren who would be greatly disturbed by it, as in me and, and many others. Why would you want to do it even if you knew that was the only reason from refraining? Because... What great purpose is it going to accomplish to change that policy to allow it? Why? 
The world stands for and represents all that is opposed to God in a spiritual and moral sense. That's what he's talking about here when he talks about the world. He's not talking about being a friend to the flowers and the animals and the sky and the grass and all of God's beautiful creation. He's not saying that everything around us in this physical realm is corrupt and should be avoided. Obviously not. We know what he's talking about. It's what Jesus talked about in John 7, verse 7, when he wrote, when he said, The world cannot hate you, but me it hates, because I testify of it that its works are evil. The world hates me, Jesus said. The world hates me. And in his prayer to the Father in John 17, as he prayed for his apostles, that they would be kept from the world, that is, from worldly influences, he prayed, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Keep them from the world, Father, was his plea. Because they're not of the world, and I'm not of the world. And none of us should be of the world. And there's a clear line of demarcation between the church and the world. And viewing the world as the realm of evil, we must be opposed to it. As James elsewhere wrote in James 1, verse 27, remember, keep oneself unspotted from the world. A ship has to navigate in water. The passengers and the crew and the cargo, though, are kept separate from that water. But if that water in the ocean gets into the ship, it begins to sink. And if the world seeps into our lives as Christians, we are headed for spiritual shipwreck. And how are you going to turn it around? When you start down this road, how are you going to turn it around? It's not going to be easy. It's a slippery slope. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And the word enmity means personal hostility or hatred. And so for one to prefer sin, for one to flirt with sin, for one to want to be a friend of the world is a personal offense toward God. You cannot run, as the old expression goes, with the hare and the hounds. Whoever would be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. That's a most significant statement because it means to purpose or to will to do something or to be something. In this case, to will to be the friend of the world. Doesn't that, doesn't that illustrate that it, and demonstrate that one does not have to actually participate in the things of the world to be worldly? I believe clearly it does. You don't necessarily have to be a participant in the worldly things in order to be worldly because worldliness is not just in, it does not just involve what you do, but it also involves how you think. It's a state of mind as well as a manner of life. Look with me at Romans chapter 8 as to what Paul says along these lines in Romans 8, verses 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It has to start in the mind before it is acted upon with the body. And to be carnally minded or fleshly minded is death, he says, 
spiritual death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, question, how can we determine? How can we know if we're friends of the world? How can we know that? Well, what about our associations? Do we have greater delight in associating with worldly people than we do with Christians? Do we experience greater pleasure in visiting secular places than the worship assemblies of the saints? Do we enjoy reading worldly literature more than we enjoy reading the Word of God? These are questions we certainly need to ask ourselves. Because it's an awful thought, I'll just tell you, it's an awful thought to be the enemy of God. You know, when we think of that, we think of people like the late Madeleine O'Hare, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, or we think of uh, Richard Dawkins or some of the modern-day, present-day atheists who are so vehemently opposed to the very existence of God. But you don't have to declare open war with God in order to make yourself an enemy of God. That's what James reminds us of here, isn't it? There are many people who are looked upon by society as good people, but they're worldly. And thus, they're the enemies of God. Matthew 6, 24 is an excellent commentary on this verse. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus says. That's a Divine commentary on this verse, isn't it? And so it is vitally important that wherever we are in our lives, older, younger, in between, that we search our hearts, that we evaluate our motives, that we know where we stand before God, and it is not difficult to ascertain our status before God because every person knows whether the Lord's cause or the world cause claims his or her chief interest. Man may use the world properly or he can be used by the world improperly. He can either make the world his servant or accept as a tyrant. Colossians 3.2 Set your mind on things above, on the things that are above, not on things that are upon the earth. And finally, the last verse we look at tonight, the next verse, verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? That's been, to commentators, a very difficult passage. But in light of the context, the general idea seems to be that James is just simply saying, people, there is no way to justify your worldly conduct. If that's what you're involved in, you cannot justify it. The scriptures plainly assert that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Do you not understand that the scriptures are clear on that? And it clearly shows that they were inclined to think lightly of what God had said regarding their relationship with the world. And isn't that the fundamental problem in the religious world today? failing to accept that the Word of God is complete, that it is the final authority in religious matters. And yet many 
religious people are inclined to think lightly regarding what the Bible teaches, what God has said. They exalt their opinions above the Word of God. They're more interested in what their particular denomination teaches. They prefer what their preachers, what the theologians, what the philosophers say over to, uh, against what God has said through inspired men in His Word. And tragically, they give little or no thought to tampering with God's divine arrangement and what the consequences of so doing will be to their mortal soul. And to those individuals, we would simply ask this question, do you think the scriptures speak in vain? Do the scriptures speak in vain? So James, in these first five verses we've looked at in the last two Sunday nights, discusses the problems of life in this world. And he discusses the source of the problem in this world, the problem of sin, wars, fightings, materialism, worldliness. What is the source? Lust, evil desire, the seeking after pleasure. But in verses 6 through 10, after he has given us the source of the problem, he will give us the solution. And that solution simply stated is this, submission to God. Submission to God is the solution to the source of all spiritual strife. And as we close tonight, we simply ask you, have you submitted to God through Jesus Christ? Are you still in the world and following the world, or are you in Christ as a child of God, follower of Christ, and living according to his teaching? If not, we plead with you to bring your life into harmony with his will tonight in the only way that you can, by a belief in Jesus as the Christ that leads you to repent of sins, confess him as the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, John 8, 24. The same Lord said, repent or perish, Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5. The same Lord said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father in heaven, Matthew 10, 32. And the same Lord said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's the only way to come out of the world is through the simple but essential plan that God's Son came and delivered to mankind. And if you haven't obeyed that plan, we plead with you to do it tonight and to come out of the world. If you've come out of the world at one time, but you know you've drifted back into the world and become guilty of the same attitude that James is addressing in these verses we've been looking at recently, if the world has gotten a hold on you again in a way that has brought reproach upon the church, the bride of Christ, then you need to repent of that sin as publicly as it's been committed. If it's a private matter, you take care of it privately between you and God. But if you need to come home publicly to your first love because you've left your first love publicly, then we plead with you to do that. As we stand to sing, will you come?